0: This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast, trying to figure out what culture actually is, and in this case, asking how indigenous cultures currently sit in Western culture in terms of politics, entertainment, scholarship, and however else would be useful to talk about. This is Mark Lintemeyer occupying ancestral Ho-Chunk land
1: in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Lawrence Ware. I am a member of the Choctaw tribe, and I am in Oklahoma, which means that I am in the middle of Indian country. John, introduce yourself.
2: Hi guys, I'm a long time listener of the partially examined life, but I'm the only one on this panel who is not a scholar. I do not have a degree. I never went to university. <laughs> I'm just an autodidact. Okay. So I should be nervous as hell, but because of what I do, because I'm a philosophy nerd, which is in our commonality here. Yeah. I'm an autodidact and basically the few friends that I do have are mostly props or retired props. Okay. To just <laughs> illustrate this, my one close friend, used to be a philosophy prof at University of Manitoba, but hated it and quit and decided to spend the rest of his career being a high school teacher. So every Saturday we hang out, we argue, we do polemics. So greetings from uh, Winnipeg, Manitoba, where it is 17 degrees Fahrenheit or minus four Celsius. So
1: let's- wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. It is 17 degrees there. Holy smokes, man. Canada's real. Okay, parent Celsius
2: and Fahrenheit meet, minus 42. Okay, (laughs) so we'll get weeks of minus 42.
1: Wow. It's November. It's the beginning of November. I cannot believe. Okay, so today in Oklahoma, it's like 72 degrees Fahrenheit. And tomorrow it'll get down like to 42 or something like that. But like, that is crazy that it is like 17 degrees there. That is nuts to me. Yeah, from here, you probably hear my thick Southern accent. I'm from the deep, deep South, uh, Southern Ontario.
2: So I grew up maybe about four miles from Detroit, Michigan. So I am a Southern. <laughs> I thought
1: for sure you was going to say Alabama.
2: I've been there though. And I lived in Knoxville, Tennessee for a very short period. Mm, very nice. So I'm the only non-scholar. So I guess I better give some, I gave a bit of background. Started out as a philosophy nerd, like about maybe 15 years ago. Just this guy wondering, like, I feel like I missed out on life and what do smart people do? They read Nietzsche. So I just started reading Nietzsche. <laughs> then, one, one after the other, I was approached by four profs at separate, different occasions, just sitting in a coffee shop. Why are you reading that? The last one stuck. That's the one I hung up with. And then I started listening to PEL, and you guys are helping me with suggested readings. So 40 books in 15 years grew into 851 books. Okay?
0: Wow.
2: Again, I'm very lucky to be able to do what I do. do
0: you have a, how do you keep track of 851?
2: What? Every once in a while, I'll count them. I don't have a spreadsheet, <laughs> so they're just physically—they're
0: all—they're all physically in your space, so you could count them at any time. That's your
2: t- piles in my. What do I got now? Oh, going on six
0: bookshelves. The reason that we connected in the first place is because Partial Exam Life did a American Indian philosophy episode. It got, let's say, mixed reviews. It
1: got terrible reviews. Mark, don't lie to the people. It got terrible reviews, and I listened to it, and I was mad about it as well.
2: I'm totally fine at work. Ideal scientists and they get me to field all that Indian questions and that's fine. <laughs> and I give them a calm, you know, here, here's what mm-hmm. it is. So the problem that they had, again, we're back to the polemics. There's not a whole literary tradition like we have in the Greco Roman world. I mean, I have it all. I have entire sections here. I've got four copies of Plato's Republic and I got three copies of Aristotle's ethics
1: and all that crap. And it's all great. I'm all about everyone. It's okay. It's, I wouldn't say it's great.
0: You know, the discussion we had scheduled today was, I'll say, very unfocused. Whereas last time I talked to Lawrence, we had a specific set of movies that a yeah, bunch of do. us watched. And maybe not everybody watched all the same stuff, but at least we knew, well, this one, taking advantage of the fact that it's it's not a pop culture podcast, it's not an entertainment podcast, it's a culture podcast, widely perceived, was like, well, when I have something that I don't know where to put it, a discussion I want to have, like, well, let's try to do it here. And so this English Prof. at University of British Columbia, Dallas Hunt, had reached out to me via Twitter saying, hey, you interacted with me years ago about this American Indian philosophy episode. We should do something on that to follow up on that because you never did anything on that. And he identified in particular
1: this book that I have only read a little bit of at this point. Red skin, White Mask. Yeah, I, I read that actually. Yeah, I read that. It's, it's a very good book. And, and I particularly like the chapter... In that book about Fanon. I think, I think that's a phenomenal use of Fanon's work. So, uh, yeah, I, I thought the book was quite good.
0: Had you had the chance to delve into that, John, I see you're... Read
1: that. Read the other one.
0: The other one is Dancing on a Turtle's Back by Leanne Simpson. Redskin White Max is by Glenn Coulthard.
2: But I also got to read uh, Diane at okay, Alfred's He's Time, Righteousness, heavily quoted by both. Actually, I own almost the bo- all the books that were quoted in both these. I know or have met almost all the elders in
0: this book. Mm. What's your take on sort of the, it's probably changed in the five years since we had a grad student telling us about, whose experience was a couple years old at that point, telling us about American Indian philosophy on Partially Examined Life. Do you have sort of a a summary assessment of like where it's at, what the topics are, what the connections are in terms of, we are very eager in the Partially Examined Life episode to sort of just treat it like we would if we were doing Confucianism, if we're doing any sort of African Ethnophilosophy or whatever is Like, well, how can we relate it to Heraclitus? How can we map it in that way to sort of get some idea of how to approach this? You know, but we obviously didn't get very far in. Give us some sort of introductory words.
2: One of the main complaints that you would get is there's not this long literary tradition. We don't have a wampum belt that tells you about the phenomenology of spirit or what phenomenology is.
1: And I absolutely hate that criticism. I absolutely hate the criticism, but keep talking.
2: Okay. So what we do have, on the other hand, are things like this. So I, I build replica wampum belts, and these tell a story through symbol. And the symbols are put to poem or song, and that's the best way to
0: memorize things. Since this is an audio medium, can you just describe for the audience what you're showing Oh, okay, showing people us?
2: won't see this. So a wampum belt, it's a beaded belt. The wampum are tubes made up of quahog shells, primarily purple and white. So the dark background wampum means it's a serious belt it's a serious issue. If it's a light color or white background belt, it's a less serious issue. I make replicas of these belts. And these belts are ways of us recording historic events or covenants, contracts, treaties, however you want to put it. So for example the Iroquois constitution, the guy in Arigola, the great good, is recorded on a 117 belts. That there are people whose entire life is to memorize these belts and their meaning. These people are called faith keepers. And every clan there's a male and female faith keeper. Their entire life is memorizing, or we'll call them knowledge keepers, or pundits, or however you want to reel in the African tradition, their entire life is to memorize what these belts mean. So similarly, let's put it in a context. The way we have the New Testament, as we had. All these people memorized these sayings of Jesus in the poem and and rhyme until literate Greeks met them later and started to translate from Aramaic to Greek. That's standard New Testament scholarship 101. So there's a lot to be said about putting things to memory. It's the best we have. So there is a type of proto-literacy we're talking about here by putting things into symbol. I'm talking about irreparably things. That is my background. I'm of mixed heritage. But up until about twenty nine thirty, I never heard a single Mohawk word spoken. So now I'm pushing 60. So this is about 30 years of my life going into this. Not just going into this, being brought into the community by very strict traditional people.
0: In Manitoba, is that, is that where the... Uh,
2: actually, I'm not from here. I'm from Southern Ontario. Then I came here about 15 years ago. So I'm a satellite Mohawk in Manitoba, a transplant, if you will. If I'm going to identify myself as something, I'd say a satellite Mohawk or I'm ambiguous, or I'm a Iroquois propagandist. I thought that was really funny. They have words wow. for, for people like wow. me. Yeah, no, it's funny. It's a word for people like me in the anthropology community, like just how superior Iroquois and everything. I just found that really funny. So most of my leaning and studies and all my traditional stuff and all my cultural practices, I know you guys can't see the stuff in the background. There's all my beadwork and stuff. All of it's basically Mohawk and Iroquois.
1: I've noticed that.
2: So fine, we don't have a strong written, tradition but we do have a strong oral tradition and part of that oral tradition is exactly what we're doing here public debate is huge Mm -hmm. we call that a gathering of good minds and we have this discourse that people agree on a topic and if there's a strong enough disagreement you go start your own community there are provisions for difference so I'm just specifically talking about one community there are hundreds and hundreds of communities with different ways of communicating Mm -hmm. their stories Whether it be through symbolism, again, I'll call it proto-writing system, or through song, or through literally memorizing like a poem or a song. They have entire
1: traditions of people who just do that. And the reason why I said I hated the Western kind of influence of saying that, you know, if it's not written down, then it's not real philosophy or something like that, is because when you look at the African-American tradition, there's a whole bunch of sermons and whatnot They kind of lay out a particular kind of philosophical kind of idea uh you look at the Choctaw tradition part that I'm from, there's the oral tradition, there's the stories, there's the songs and all the kind of stuff there's laying these things out and it's always bothered me, and it's part of the reason why I have this big beef with Western philosophy and why I do the kind of philosophy that I do, philosophy of race, things like that is because I've never really fully felt comfortable with this like very narrow bourgeoisie kind of notion that in order for philosophy to be philosophy it has to be written down. Because if you look at hip-hop, that's philosophy. If you look at songs, that's philosophy. If you look at stories, that's philosophy. And so I've always had a problem with that. There is without a doubt philosophies that are indigenous. There are philosophies that are African philosophies, that are genuine, true philosophical ideas. Like they're doing the metaphysics, they're doing the ethics, they're doing all the other kind of stuff, but they're not writing it down. And so because it's not being written down, many philosophical traditions, many philosophers, I dare say, uh, Mark's not one of them, but there are many philosophers who are on my hall that I work with. They don't take it seriously because it's not written down. There needs to be space and there's beginning to be space. You look at conferences now that I'm going to, there's beginning to be space for philosophical traditions that are not written down, that are not prototypical philosophical traditions, but it's still slow going. And I do think that this push for diversity is part of the reason why they're beginning to kind of take that seriously. When you come to indigenous philosophies, There are a lot of Native people kind of entering into philosophy that's kind of pushing it that way. There's also something going on in the culture that we can talk about. That's part of the reason, Mark, why I included that stuff about Yellowstone. That's starting to move things in the direction that it needs to go. But it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Because most people, when they think about philosophy, they think about Hume. They think about Aristotle. They think about Plato. Even if you want to get funky, they think about Fanon. They think about do boys they think about those kinds of people and that's philosophical to be sure but i would argue that there are also philosophical things going on in hip-hop but there's also philosophical stuff going on in r&b there's philosophical stuff happening in indigenous communities that's not being written down but if you listen to the songs if you listen to the stories if you listen to the debates particularly the debates because the debates is where it's happening if you listen to that stuff there's philosophy happening all over the place.
0: So both of you brought up debate. So that that was a thing that we sort of run into is does there have to be a spirit for it to be philosophy of questioning of self-criticism as opposed to what we were running into whenever we start reading, even in Eastern traditions, it's like when things start to go into religion, well, the dividing point seems to be, of course, religion is philosophical ideas, right? A religion can have a metaphysics, a religion certainly probably has an ethics, etc. But if there is not some sort of dialogue, if there's not some sort of openness to criticism, then it's hard to see how something is philosophy. And so the tradition of storytelling I had associated with as, you know, it's delivering homilies, it's delivering, here's a message, here's a picture, there could be some philosophical content to it. But until it's a debate of some sort, and Lawrence, I'm glad you threw that in there, that even in talking about hip-hop or something, because, of course, I'm very open to art presenting philosophical ideas, but art does not have the kind of responsibility in that there isn't typically somebody, a critic, like if a critic jumps to you utter your artwork, if they have anything to say about it, they're talking about the quality of your artwork or something. You're not engaging the philosophical ideas, is debate a central component of these sort of other non-written presentations?
1: So inside of hip hop, there is a debate component to it, right? So MCs all the time disagree and they go head to head and they kind of debate one another, although it's not really debate. So it's a diss track. So, for example, Meek Mill and Drake had beef. Also, Drake and Push-Up Teeth had beef. And so what they did is they released these diss tracks and kind of go at one another. Now, oftentimes the diss tracks are going at a person, but every now and then the diss tracks will go at what the person was talking about. And so there is a spirit of debate, if you will, happening within the hip hop context. Now, when it comes to other places and other things that's happening, I would say, yes, the spirit of debate is absolutely essential. Because if you release something like artwork or whatever, just, you know, oral stories, and no one's, like, taking you to task or kind of evaluating it or anything like that, then that's not really what I would call philosophical. That's more storytelling, legend-making, folk tales. But when people absolutely enter into debates and go back and forth, that's where I would say the philosophical content kind of comes out and where you begin to realize that there is a great deal of metaphysics happening. It's the debates where the ethics kind of comes to the forefront or the disagreements about metaphysics come to the forefront and really get kind of hammered out. And I will argue that is without a doubt where a lot of that philosophy is coming from.
2: This would be heavy to try to, let's say I just listened to I hammered my head against the wall, listening to the two-parter on Heidegger for me to try to, (laughs) I can translate the Dasein (laughs) into certain teachings because there is a lot of discussion on is what it is to be a human being there's a lot of tradition about what it is to be a human being in this world. So now my inner evolutionary biologist knows better than to make any real distinction between all of us based on our ethnicity. That 50% of what's different about us is I'll call it our software based on our cultural programming which is based on where we're really from. Everything is postal code. So mm-hmm, even though I mm-hmm. have this particular ancestry on one side I'm really someone who grew up very close to Michigan. So I have to ask myself, how culturally am I American? How culturally hmm. am I Canadian? Which parts of me, you know, as Diage Alfred would talk about, like which parts of me am I living that is specifically Mohawk, like that you're actually, where you're actually performing the culture, right? We have to be Good very questions. honest about what we really are. I love that you teach philosophy of race. I have an entire section of my bookshelf. On anti-racism, history of racism, and good. I have to read everything from for and against racism.
0: For racism, are there any good
2: books for racism? <laughs> what? Uh, Davenport, if he would have listened to his own findings, Davenport was proving that race mixing, quote unquote, race mixing was good because of hybridization. Davenport was the one why they mm-hmm. were the uh, race studies in Jamaica, and they were using the Hollerith yeah, machines and all this kind know.
0: of things.
1: He was the first one. What's the first name? I don't know his first name, but he's one of the biggies. If you just Google Davenport and like Jamaica and like race mixing, it'll come up. It's not good. I want to preface this by saying what I'm about to say is not good. Like, so these are not people that I would advise. However, if you want to get at a philosophical kind of take, it's bad philosophy, but it's a philosophical take on it. So there is a very, it's slipping my mind, but there's a book that's kind of famous It's written by a French guy. It was very influential to some of these mass murderers here recently. And it lays out a way forward for white people, (laughs) given the nature of diversity and whatnot. Like I said, it's not a good book. I'm not trying to say that I'm advocating for it. But I do think in order for me to do what I do well, I have to read the stuff that I don't agree with because I have to know, man, listen, hold on. I know it's an audio medium. And I know that, you, that the people who are listening to this won't be able to see what I'm about to show, but I have right here that I just got through reading Mein Kampf, right? right here, you read the, right all here. all of Mein Kampf? This is my third time reading it, man. I've read all of it. Absolutely. Again, I have to know what they're thinking. I have to know what they're saying. And I have to be able to kind of say that this is what Hitler said. This is what Hitler's trying to do, but he was wrong on these points. And I can't do that successfully. I can't do that well if I don't read it. You look behind me, I have all kinds of crazy shit back there, man. Like all kinds of stuff that, again, I don't agree with at all, but I got to read it.
0: I proposed for a PEL episode in 2017 or so, I forget exactly when, that we read a section of Mein Kampf and a section of The Art of the Deal, just to put those both on the table at the
1: same... I would not do that. That's <laughs> that was idea. That was resoundingly rejected by my uh, three co-hosts. That is not a good idea. But I would say that, and this is kind of going off topic here... But an interesting podcast would be us or someone reading stuff that you don't agree with, like racial stuff that you don't agree with, and figuring out why it's bad. Because I do think that there is value. Because one of the things that oftentimes happens, and I find this with my students, is that they will be racist and have racist ideas, but no one knows their ideas well enough to kind of tangle with them about it, right? And I'll take it on myself to learn their ideas, learn where it comes from, learn why they're thinking the way that they're thinking, and then I'm able to kind of talk to them about it. But oftentimes, people who are progressive, people who are anti-racist, whatever, they don't want to deal with the ideas. I get it. It makes them feel icky. They don't like it. It makes them upset. I've thrown Mein Kampf across the room a number of times reading it, but I have to read it And I have to kind of address whatever it is that this person is saying. And I would argue that a a podcast episode that does that, that takes it seriously, that walks through it, it will make you feel icky. It's not something that that you're going to enjoy, but I think there's value there. All right. And let me say this, a group of white dudes doing that is not a good idea. You need more people than just y'all to do that. You're like, you need other people. You're not
0: proposing a PEL episode. You're you're proposing Uh, some variation. Some elaboration of this
1: (laughs) current discussion.
0: One of the things when we were exchanging emails about this episode is, John, you kind of went into something about your evolving take on your heritage. How And this is one of the things I was interested in, that from what I've seen in the media and what I've read, the little bit that I've read, presents this axis of just more assimilated versus less assimilated. There, There are reservations. Some people live on the reservations. Some people are the elders on the reservations, and they cling to the ancient ways. And some people are in positions of power on the reservations. And depending on what popular media you're looking at, maybe they're corrupt casino owners because of course a casino owner in any popular media is going to be corrupt. But I haven't done, you know, a good, I haven't read a lot of like phenomenological accounts of sort of how folks with native ancestry, how that actually fits into their life. Whereas I feel like I have a pretty good understanding of like from various literally respectable accounts of how Like an Italian-American or someone who is growing up from Jewish ancestry or something like that. Obviously, those are very different experiences. Can you get us started on that? Or is that even a condescending question
2: to ask? I'm from the city, 100%. I can't talk to growing up on a res, period, right? So this puts me in a completely different dichotomy, my postal code, if you will. Sure. I have lots of relatives that way and lots of extended family out that way. And I've lived in those places, but I'm not from those places. And we have to be very honest about that because there's what we call a pretendian. Then there's the one I call a biological pretendian. Right? (laughs) Like, what are you really? Oh, great. You have all this DNA and and phenotype, but what are you really? What is your programming?
0: Well, in the pretendian thing, so after we had that Native American episode, somebody was saying, hey, you know, you should have Googled the professor who our guest Jim was citing as his main guide through all this. Because that guy, you know, there's sort of a scandal around him. Like, is he actually of native blood? Clearly, he's a scholar in the area. Clearly, he's interested in it. But is he just bullshitting with his particular native name that he was using? Like, I can't actually speak onto that. But I know that there was an internet thing that, had I been aware of it, might have really changed how we approached that episode. Man, um, you were set
1: up there a little bit.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah this is strange because usually in most... Disciplines. So let's say you want to study Sanskrit. Everybody knows you have to go to Germany to study Sanskrit. Those are where the best scholars are. Or if you want to study the New Testament, the best New Testament scholars happen to be all atheists, right? So it's a strange thing for I have a real hard time with nationalism for making a big deal of being born something, which I have zero contribution to. But I, I get I get it in terms mm. of this field of scholarship. I know lots of native historians who are not natives they don't say they're native or anything they're just that's their profession that's their expertise their yeah. hard work and everything they did it's like being a doctor being an anthropologist being a physician it's all from your work i get what you're talking about but when you're talking about on that sort of level of when they're trying to we're talking about this indigenous epistemology and bringing in that's a living thing so again back to diage alfred He's very confrontational about that, but he does not go by the government definition of who is First Nation and Indigenous. It's like, where are your family? What are you doing? How is your life? And bottom line, does the community recognize you? Mm. Of course, you see how dark I am. I'm suspiciously dark for Mohawk. I'm just kidding. Yeah,
1: I I was going to say you're not. I don't bother
2: talk about it at work. I don't bring it up. I only talk about it with the community people. We all know who each other are, right? I've been grilled. I've been asked practically to leave ceremony because they didn't like Mohawks, right? Mm. So let's not pretend that there's this grand pan unity. You know, there's a lot of old
1: historic bad blood. Yeah, and that's the thing that doesn't really get talked about much. And I don't think we should talk about it too much. But there is some internal, I wouldn't say division, there's tension there. There's other tribes that my tribe doesn't like. I'm not say what they are. And it's not like Pan-Africanism where everybody's like black and you just kind of go along. There's, there's tension in Pan-Africanism also. The thing is that indigenous folks have been so exploited that oftentimes they're like there's like this feel to make everyone the same or to like get along, to go along or something like that. Just for political solidarity reasons? Yeah, oftentimes there is. Yeah, oftentimes there is like this kind of pressure to kind of try to get along or something like that. Or, or like I'm on a college campus. And on a college campus, we have a uh, First Nations space and a First Nations like group of people. And inside of that First Nations group of people, there's a whole bunch of like nations there. There's a whole bunch of folks there. And in any other kind of setting, if they were with their own folks, there would be tension. But because you're on this college campus and you're so few of you, you all go go along to get along. But you get out into the real world uh, and you get around your own people. There is oftentimes some tension there. The first book we had to read. Red skin, white masks. He talked
2: Good about the, the hardcore traditionalists. Yep. Who everything's all tradition and all protocol. Yep. I fall into that category. That's how I was brought in 30 years mm. ago. Old mm-hmm. school AIM people. American right. Indian movie. And I'll give a couple shout outs if that's okay. Jay Mason. And John Pheasant back from Toronto. They might, hopefully, they're still alive. But they brought me in Mohawks and Ojihawks. Ha- Mohawks and Ojibways together, OG Hawks. So that's primarily how I came in, was through old school traditional people. What's interesting is when we get together, traditional enemies, we like to talk shop because the traditionals like to talk shop, and we're we're just talking about old times. And here's how we resolve things, right? So the traditional people are totally cool, usually. But we know our history. Almost every book I've read on my history, like when I read the 1947 edition of League of the Iroquois, and the opening line was, there used to be a time in New England when a person would used to just have to say, look, Mohawks, and entire villages would flee in terror. Mm -hmm. That's
1: not a feel-good moment. This is kind of like internal to like, why people don't know this stuff? Like, they have no idea. Like, so for example, the same thing with the tension in Pan-Africanism. White people have no idea that there's like tension between Trinidad's and Jamaican's or there's tension between people who are from Nigeria and Kenya. So this is kind of an internal conversation that we're having and letting you guys. Have I mean, we to. we
0: we got some access some idea that there was the Hutus and the Tutsis.
1: You definitely got access to that. But I would argue that that wasn't original. That, that came from colonization. I, it was the Belgians who went there, colonized them, separated them. And because of that, there was the tension there.
0: Let's stop for some quick sponsor talk. I have a podcast network you should check out. The Geek Freaks Network has 11 podcasts covering an array of pop culture topics. From gaming to Star Trek, they have it all. Each podcast is professionally edited for a clear sound and pleasant listening experience. Best of all, they support all fandoms. You won't hear anybody bashing on your favorite movie or game. All fandoms are celebrated and appreciated. So if you're looking for a new place to hang out, just Google Geek Freaks and have fun. You know, we've talked a good amount about in our discussions of Phenon and du bois about like double consciousness and how so one of the things i didn't read very much of the redskin white masks the part that i read was trying to build on fanon's take on hegel
1: so uh, that's how, what yeah, that's the part yeah. that i really enjoyed as well yes yeah, so, yeah, so hegel
0: part, yeah. hegel has this master slave thing that says that people gain a sense of self-consciousness through interactions with others and that in this sort of proto-mythical whatever take on, you could imagine that the primary way of people coming together is not as sort of isolated, equal individuals as like would be the case in social contract theory. It's like, we're just all out here, we're all approximately the same, but is somebody enslaving somebody else? And what does that do psychologically? Well, according to Hegel, it's actually... The master, ironically, gets the short end of the stick because they, (laughs) because the master does not gain any sense of self out of it. The slave is just a tool for the master. And so it's like the master is in a void, doesn't gain any sort of the reflection that is necessary to gain real self-consciousness, whereas being treated as anything, even like shit, and then also the slave is the one who's actually interacting with the land, who's actually creating things in the world. And these two forces of the master sort of giving you a self-image This is, hey, you're my slave. So the slave then supposedly gains this sense of self-consciousness. Fanon's critique of that was to point out something that I think is implicit in Hegel, that of course, if you don't see this as sort of a birth of civilization thing, this is how we got self-consciousness in the first place, but as an ongoing way of accounting for the psychology of master and slave or colonizer and colonized situations, that no, it's not the case that the colonized gets this illuminating sense of... It is not the case. ...of self-awareness. It is not the case, yes. Because of the ideology that the master has imbued them with. And the master, frankly, has a lot of peers to deal with and gets plenty of self-consciousness and affirmation from dealing. But that culture that the master would create with their peers then gets imposed upon the slaves, the colonized. And so their sense of self is completely screwed up.
1: (laughs) And they're not self-actualizing. They're having actualization imposed, in a way, upon them. But go ahead, Mark, finish your thought.
0: So you, you guys can then fill in the gap. So what is Coulthard adding in terms of how this applies specifically to this? Is it the same dynamic in terms of the victims of a past, you know, the descendants of a past genocide who are now living in whether it's the U.S. or Canada or Australia or many other places that have had native populations that have just been completely bulldozed, that's a different situation, of course, than the situation of American slavery or whatever, but is more similar to what Fanon was actually writing about in French-colonized North Africa. What is Coulthard adding to this picture in terms of the the First Nations experience specifically?
2: What I found in this book is he's, he's harmonizing both worlds. He's going into the traditionalist world, but he's also going into finance. He's applying Marxism in certain areas. And I see the traces of the Frankfurt School and that sort of thing. I'm a huge fan, but I'm primarily from the traditional side. He's trying to make sense of all this and the world that we live in, our economic state and all that. If you compare the green book to that, that one is just tradition. And the way the book was laid out, it was a ceremony in itself.
0: You're talking about dancing on our turtle's back.
1: You're right. on
2: Specifically, with that. eight chapters is very important. I'll just take this up a notch because I keep talking about tradition and that, and respecting spirituality. And that I am an agnostic atheist, so I should not be respecting this stuff at all. But through my growing and learning process, depth psychology, I understand the purpose of symbolism and meaning, and how Whoa. important belief systems are. So me, I used to be an asshole atheist. Now I love all traditional peoples, and that means Catholics observant Jews, my Muslim friends who just do the things because their
1: families just do those things. I'm all about that. That is a whole nother discussion, man. (laughs) That is interesting.
0: That is totally related to the, you know, what I was saying is like, how do we compare this First Nations experience to the modern Jewish experience? Because there are a lot of, you know, secular Jews that are very into the cultural traditions can set aside the actual literal beliefs, spiritual beliefs of Judaism. And we have the same thing with modern Buddhists, you know, so I didn't know if there was a comparable thing in. Yeah, I would say so. It's a sense of continuity. You go through the rituals. Like I'm friends with lots of Jews. So they go through the rituals,
2: Passover, Yom Kippur, all that. They might actually be atheists themselves, but they go through
1: it culturally because there's a sense of. Yeah. There's a sense of culture there. In fact, one of my really good friends is an atheist who is Jewish. And so They go through the ceremonies, they keep kosher, they follow all the traditions. They don't believe in that stuff necessarily, but it connects them to their past. It connects them to, to their community. And there is something very important. You know, Cornel West has something very similar. Although Cornel West is a theist, Cornel West is a person who, he has all these issues with, you know, traditional theism and all that kind of stuff, but he continues to go to church. He continues to identify himself as a Baptist. Uh, he continues to do all these kind of things because it connects him to the, to his past. In fact, I would argue that I'm a person, although I'm a clergy as well, but I'm a person who I have major, major issues with many things that are theistic. I have major issues with exclusivism, with homophobia. I'll, I have major issues with all this stuff, but I continue to do it because it connects me to my past.
2: So why would a person pray if they're an atheist? And I'll show you why I would which was interesting because I said my first prayer in almost 10 years, Hmm. what is more spiritual than a human being emoting out to the universe, their existence. Does Hmm. it matter that there's someone on the other end of the phone call Hmm. when you're emoting your existence outward? So I have a lot to be grateful for. I'm not starving. I got, I have a house. I have a good job and all that. Why would I not, you know, last week I said, I said, wow, I really need to pray. Hmm. Right. What could be more spiritual than a human being? Emoting their existence to the universe. Our whole existence as human beings, even neurologically, we're spiritual beings. Just having a goal, is that not metaphysics? You have a non physical object you're trying to reach to? Mm -hmm. What could be more spiritual than just setting goals and living your life and having a vision of the future? This is why symbolisms and goals and teleology and all that stuff is so important. You can't just write it off. I used to be the asshole atheist. No way. I love all you guys, man. And I envy tremendously. (laughs) I'm even thinking of going back to ceremony, but I have to talk to my friends because I stopped going out of respect to the ceremony. What is an atheist doing in your
1: lodge? Mark, this is an expansive conversation. I mean, we're talking about essentially everything. I've really
0: changed my attitude about prayer with age that I just I felt like as a younger person, as an atheist or, you know, seriously agnostic, like oh, that's just foolish, that's something. But I've always had a thing of like, oh, my grandmother is dead. Let me talk to, think about my grandmother and feel a warm flush and it's as if I'm reaching out to, but I don't literally believe in ghosts.
1: It's something going on there. It connects you to something. I know what you're talking about. Yeah,
0: so I have no problem. It's almost just like part and parcel with sometimes journaling or singing. I have no problem if you're in a plane that starts to wobble around of like, <laughs> I'm a, I'm a foxhole theist yeah. or whatever, like yeah. of, of yeah. doing that. Or when you're depressed doing something that, you know, I wouldn't say that I pray in the sense of like, as a ritual, I'm not connected in that way. Even though I grew up going to church, I don't feel the need to, as my parents did. My parents eventually became transcendentalists or Unitarians. Cause they were like, we don't want somebody pushing conservative social garbage on us. But we do like the singing and we do like the spiritual aspect. <laughs> like I'm not quite to that point. Maybe I will be when I'm seventy.
1: I but think you'd be shocked, man. Like like seriously, knowing you as well as I do and knowing like your love for music and whatnot, I would not be shocked if in five years, 10 years, you're in a church somewhere. I wouldn't be because again, for me, it is not about the theistic stuff. Now I teach it and I can preach and all that kind of stuff and I'm able to kind of communicate with them and even do a very good job at it. But in my inner parts, it's not about that. It's it's not about the theistic stuff. It's not about that stuff. It's about communing with the same thing that helped my ancestors get through slavery. It's about communing with the same thing it helps my ancestors go through the civil rights movement. And there's something to that about communing with your grandmother or communing with something larger than yourself. Like, and it's not about the theistic stuff. It's about trying to get through life, man. Life is fucking hard dog. And you need something to help you get through it. And sometimes I throw on some gospel music and I don't believe in that shit, but God damn it. If it don't help me get through it today, it just does. You're cultivating meaning. Yeah.
2: And back to your point about like why we do atheists go through these rituals of like, why do they observe Passover Easter or whatever? It's culture. You're just cultivating your values. You're reinforcing your own culture.
0: So returning then to the philosophy connection, like I don't see any problem with then talking about native philosophies and native wisdom traditions and trying to make sense of that in the same way one would do these sort of semi, we just had a three-part episode recently on Pl on symbols and mythology. To be respectful tradition doesn't mean not being critical of it. It doesn't mean that you can't step back and take a sociological take on it. Those are not incompatible, as you've just been saying, with participating in it. You know, in fact, that would be how you should, you know, if you're going to be somebody who is going to church, who's engaging in prayer, you know, unless you feel like it spoils it somehow. I remember I had a friend, you know, musical cohort long ago was because music, you know, you're dealing with personal stuff, you're dealing with personal expression, but he was super Christian and I was not. And so that was sort of an ongoing point. And he felt like, no, it's a thing of the heart. And once you start getting your philosophy meddling in it, you can't do it anymore. You're sort of defeating the purpose. I don't know. Do you feel that that's the case? Or it seems like, no, 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 as a thinking individual, it's absolutely appropriate to question these things and put them in some sociological context. And there's nothing disrespectful about then trying to do that, not only for your own tradition, but for other traditions. Like, I want to learn more about Hinduism. I want to learn more about this particular First Nations, of course, blending them all together and saying, oh, yeah, there's Pan-India. Yes, I understand that that's a problem. But as far as a way in okay, let's read a book about totem pole stories or whatever, and how, you know, to get at the Alaskan natives, there's something inherently <laughs> problematic or condescending uh, or something about that sort of anthropological tourism. Is that what you'd have to call it? If you're like, I want to know more about the world and I want to bring my critical framework that I have from philosophy to these things. So that's the way I'm going to start studying, you know, basically what we did in that episode. What was it about, Lawrence, you said you were pissed off listening to that episode, but we were as self-reflective and humble and giving provisos and yes, no, this is only a first step. This is just the best we could do right now with the time available as we could be. But yet there was still something maddening about
1: it. I mean, it just, I wouldn't say I was pissed off. I just felt that you guys could have done that much better. And you could have been a little bit more selective in who you had in the conversation. You could have been a little bit more thoughtful about how you engaged it. So it wasn't necessarily like, like you guys weren't being assholes about it. Like, you know, you weren't being flippant or anything like that. It's just that you guys with everything else that you do, you're so careful, you know? So you're so careful when you're talking about race, you're so careful when you talk about Heidegger, even though he's a fucking asshole. You're so careful. (laughs) (laughs) You're so careful about, I hate Heidegger. I, I hate his thought and I hate that dude. I'd have punched him if I saw him. Okay, anyway, but you're so careful. <laughs> and like I was so mad you made me shake my, my microphone. You're so careful about how you do everything. It just felt like on this topic, you didn't have the same level of care and you didn't do the same level of work that you should have done. If you were a flippant individual, Mark, I would not get along well with you. Like, you're not flippant. You're very respectful of a tradition. You're very respectful of knowing the stuff that you don't know. And it's just like on this one, you dropped the ball, man. And that's what made me upset about it is that you could have been better on the guest. You could have been better on what you talked about and about how you talked about it.
0: So I started that question as a more general question about (laughs) healing tradition. No, no, and then I and then I ended it. You narrowed it.
1: You narrowed it down.
0: Let me ask. Throw the wider question back out there of investigating this as philosophy, or you know, we already told about how. Trying to impose the tradition of written sources onto this oral stuff, that there's something messed up about that. We need to somehow take it on its own terms more. I was then comparing this to like, is there something fundamental about being in the tradition as opposed to approaching the tradition from the outside and wanting to learn more about that? That's a, you know, fundamentally anthropological yes, thing. Yes. Or
2: about yeah. but what we're finding more now as we're having more and more. Indigenous scholars who are from communities, and a lot of them are actually traditional people going into academia, getting PhDs. We'll have way more people to talk to about this. It's growing and growing. Very, I'm very soon. Very very, very, very soon. Very, right? very soon. I'm fr- just here in Winnipeg, I'm friends with five props. You don't always know who to talk to. It's <laughs> not a huge community. I found the podcast actually quite respectful. I was listening to it. I had no issues with you know. I know where the complaints are going. I I get it. I tried to respond. I did a video response to that. Well, you did a video response to it? Yes. Wow. Oh, you're passionate about it. Wow. But we start with networking, asking the questions. Who do you recommend? That's where you go. I can't fault anyone for not having the exact right person at the right time.
0: Is there something specific to, like, even our guest at the time was saying, you know, my teacher said, don't do this because there's a specific ethic within First Nations philosophy of This is wisdom and wisdom is a gift. It sounds like a fundamentally different like, you know, you freaking colonizers reach into our business enough over the years. So maybe you should just remain silent about this stuff and don't be too curious or what like,
2: am I overreacting to that? This is a very interesting point because I am both at the same time. I'm of mixed heritage. So I'm so old. I can still remember when people took the word colonialism seriously. Brought up 30 years ago. <laughs> oh, wow. I wish I was joking. Decolonized now is a flavor at Starbucks. I can hardly take Whoa. it anymore. Come in it's, hot. It's used so frivolously. I mean, it's a great flavor, don't get me wrong, but it's used so frivolously. It's hard for me to take a lot of the conversation seriously. You're just throwing it around. You know, what do you mean, decolonized? Am I going to be decolonized? I mean, am I going to dissect part of myself, send that chunk to France, send this my leg to Ireland? And then my abdomen stays in central New York, where the Iroquois come from.
0: Like, let's get real. What what you actually mean here? Because this was the pop culture podcast, we at least had on our list. We're going to like, you know, one of the inciting things about this is that suddenly they're like reservation dogs being the main, there's native representation in an increasing number of shows, which is funny in that there aren't actually that many actors who are, so it's like the same... Woman is in Rutherford Falls, who is in Reservation Dogs as the nurse, who is, you know, the same five actors,
2: whatever that are. I love it. And it was a good gathering of all those people. Some of them I actually knew. And some of them were not YouTube, but Facebook celebrities. He created their personas. Now they're in movies, right? So I love seeing that collection. I like seeing Gary Farmer back. I like seeing the Podemski sisters back here from Toronto. So it was great to see that. When I went into that show, I'm an old guy. So the first thing I was worried about, is this going to be a bunch of young people stuff I'm going to need translator for? Am I going to think this (laughs) this sucks? (laughs) Not even one minute into the show, all I see is rust, concrete, and I hear an Iggy Pop song, I Want to Be Your Dog. I'm in, not even one minute in, I'm sold. Why? Because my life is rust, concrete, and Iggy Pop. And what's also interesting, too, is the characters, no one's really... That bad. It really gets into the personalities of the characters. My favorite is the cop. Of oh, all, he's yeah, he's like yeah. every he's like He's, he's actor, our conspiracy he's guy. Yeah. You know, learns everything from YouTube. But he just had so many personalities there. If I was to compare the show, it was like churla Park Boys meets Napoleon Dynamite, but unlike churla Park Boys, way less swearing and way less substance abuse. Also, what I like about the imagery, you know, we're getting back to bringing people that were actual people. So beyond good and evil, we're not less than human. We're not more than human. We're just people. And that's the bottom line of this conversation. Again, my inner evolutionary biologist does not believe in race. It just makes me laugh. You know, we're all of the same root. We all come from the same place. We just have different programming based on our postal code.
1: Everything is where we are from, how we are raised. That's who we really are as human beings. I'll say this, that when it comes to Reservation Dogs. When it comes to Yellowstone, eighteen eighty three has it has a lot there. Rutherford Falls. What you're seeing is the fact that for so long Hollywood ha- was very very white, very very male. Those were the people who were in charge, and now there is beginning to be more of a proliferation of people of color, of people from different backgrounds, rising into positions of power. And so they're the ones who are now writing the shows. They're the ones who are now the showrunners and whatnot as more people who come from different various backgrounds get more and more power, you're going to see more and more of these kinds of shows, you you know? So it's not white people making shows that feature indigenous folks and they have no idea about the culture. It's people who are indigenous who know the culture and they're bringing what they know to the forefront. They're bringing it to the show. And so as we begin to see more people get more and more power, you're going to see more, you know, so one of the things I'm looking forward to is the day when we'll have an indigenous woman running a show and because there's a lot there for her to explore. I'm looking forward to more indigenous people who are LGBTQ plus to make sure because there's a lot there. Uh, Indigenous people who are on the spectrum because there's a lot there. And the thing is that you're learning that people who are indigenous, people who are people of color, they can make good shit. They make good shows if you just let them make it. And even in the horror genre, there was recently a a movie, oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of it now. came out on Shudder. It's about zombies. I cannot remember it, but it was made by a Native American person. I'm sure Mark is probably going to Google it and probably give you the name of it here soon. It was very, very well known. In fact, the filmmaker recently passed away, sadly. But nevertheless, that was a movie. movie. Is it
0: Blood Quantum?
1: That's it, Blood Quantum. That's the movie. It's a really good movie. It's on Shudder. But nevertheless, You're beginning to see that in all these genres, in horror, in comedy, in action, in whatever, if you let them go, they will bring their backgrounds to them and they'll make good stuff. And I'm encouraged by that.
0: So I didn't know if that, you know, other than just the, as I was trying to say earlier, that we use literature, we use TV, we use et cetera, as the way that we actually get a little bit of phenomenology of other people, right? That this is not necessarily I don't know if I'd go so far as to say it's philosophy, but I don't mind also using that in a very loose sense in terms of like just being in a situation, you know,
1: you're being in the world. So there's going to be yeah, something philosophical. I not call it philosophy either, but it's philosophical, you know. There's something interesting to it, but no, it's not pure philosophy. I mean, I'm a scholar. I can't just let everybody come into, <laughs> come to the, the table, but it is definitely philosophical. I'll give you that.
0: Let's go around one more time. Any closing thoughts about future directions for this conversation or what we probably should have talked more about?
2: Well, I just want to say I really enjoyed this talking circle. And at the end of every stanza on Iroquois Thanksgiving address, they always end, now our minds are one. So this was an exercise in what we call the good mind. So I enjoyed all these perspectives. So this is Jean Beaubien, who is of Mohawk ancestry, living here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Treaty 1 territory, saying, say Sego Goigo. go. Greetings, everyone. And Halito to my Choctaw brother there. And hello, Mark, my American brother there. It was really great to talk to you and meet you. I feel very honored and thank you very much for being here.
1: Man, John gonna I... make me cry up here. I would like to do a discussion, maybe let go of the Indian philosophy part and just do solely a discussion about Native representation in film and television, because we can do an interesting discussion charting it from like Dancing with Wolves. Even going further back, like Stagecoach, The Searchers, depending on how far back you want to go, Dancing with Wolves is a particular point. And then now where we are with, with the Taylor Sheridan universe and now where we are with Reservoir Dogs. So you can chart that discussion like you can chart the way that things have gone. That's an interesting discussion, and like just zero in on pop culture sometime in the near future. That'd be interesting.
0: I was open to doing more of a TV-focused thing, but then, John, you said via email that you like hadn't watched TV in the last decade. So I was like, well, maybe oh my maybe, goodness. maybe that won't be the focus.
1: Whoa! <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Come on, John. What are we doing here, man? <laughs> no, I, I like, understand it. I understand. There are other
0: aspects to, yeah, to there's take other on avenues. here. I don't know if either of you listened to the, did I point you at the Jonathan Joss interview? Episode seven of this podcast. So Jonathan Joss is the guy that did John Redcorn in King of the Hill, the vo- the voice. And he was in many, many other in Parks and Rec. He was like the native casino owner guy that would deal with the main character. Anyway, he's he's one of the, like the handful of and he was in a musical at the time with Erica, my co-host. And so we got him on to sort of talk about how he hadn't got to wear pants and things in <laughs> much of his career. Like it's wow. just a new thing that he's wow. actually Has parts where he gets to wear pants.
2: There are things we just won't talk about. Even if things are in the public domain now, there are topics I won't touch, like certain specifics of ritual, certain specifics of ceremony, certain specifics of that. That is probably where that's coming from. I will not discuss certain ceremonies. I will not discuss certain symbols. I remember 30 years ago being scolded just for talking about something where I could walk over to the park here at the Forks, and now these things are statues that are just right there in a the public domain. So things are changing. Things are becoming more open. You'll find more things come out as we go along. But there are very rigid, traditional people who just will not discuss things, not even on camera, nothing. And I totally get that because there's been so much exploitation by new agers and that that's where that's coming from.
0: And I don't know if those specifics would not be of interest anyway to philosophy because philosophy is more interested in generalizations. It's not about like, The specific cultural content of a particular dance, like, no, it's that this kind of dance is done at all and what the function of dance is like an anthropological take on it. But I'm sure once you get into sort of being protective about the specifics, it's hard to then say, well, what is the point? Why are you discussing whether rain dances are legitimate, which took way too much time because it was a thing in Black Elk Speaks, which again was something that we talked about because it was so often referred to by the New Age community, right? By the people who are trying to do philosophy in quotes. In other words, uh, if you don't have a lot of academic work in this area, well, what is the other philosophical work that's been done in this area? So if you look at like how much academic work has been done in Taoism, well, actually, probably lots and lots, because there's so many thousands of years of written tradition in China, particularly. But in terms of like how much it's gotten in the popular culture. It's a mixed bag in terms of, of that you have a book like Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance that is mm. very clearly like popularly oriented, right. and the guy had some academic training and much, some specific yeah. things that he's mm-hmm. pulling out, but it's much more a, you know, all that academic stuff, that's just putting barriers between people and <laughs> fruitful <laughs> ways of living. And so if you're talking specifically about the way to live in harmony with nature or whatever, you know, one of these common themes in Taoism or in native philosophies, then it seems like well you shouldn't need the specifics. You should be able to talk in a more popular way. It's one thing if new agers are turning this into buy crystals off of my website. Like of course there there are commercial corruptions of these things. <laughs> but when I like hear the philosophy in you know, I've listened to a lot of yes. So John Anderson, the head of yes, is such a new agey pan Alan Wattsy. I don't know that much about Alan Watts, but I, but I gather he took from every tradition to like, we want to make our lives full and spiritual. And so of course, if there's stuff that the native traditions have to offer that you could take advantage of, that you could make use of, why wouldn't you as a spiritual seeker sort of take the wisdom wherever it is? And, but that's leading to this sort of cultural tourism or philosophical, I don't know. It, it can seem deeply appropriative in a negative way.
2: Or if we want to approach it at a more spiritual and philosophical perspective, what is the message to the rest of humanity about being a human being in the world who just happens to be of this culture? Right, Approaches everything. Context is everything. How you approach all that. It'll come. The networks are growing. You will meet the right people. We have to be patient. You have to understand though, there are very serious traditional older people who are very protective for all the reasons above. And, you know, we're, we are in a crisis mode with so many issues we're dealing with that people are very protective, but there are people who will reach out eventually. It's happening. I'm very hopeful in the future, we'll have more and more open communication about this. And my big thing is we're just people, real people, real cultures, just other people in the world. When I grew up, I was raised to believe that we were not real cultures, right? These were not legitimate cultures that I was exploring. Mm -hmm. You know, there was no pride in this. There was no reason. There was no type of Indian. So why bother asking, right? So I was shocked as hell the first time I ever met anyone who was actually proud to be Native and who was a traditional person. And they they just explained something to me and it just blew my mind that I never heard anything like that in my life. Like I was truly internally colonized, if you will. I had no positive image at all about being what it was. My only two conversations I ever had in my life was, by the way, when I'm eight years old, you and your brother are Indians. And other conversation, we killed Bray Buff, this French missionary. That was our only conversation we ever had.
0: Yeah, I mean, the big sort of political issue over this whole thing is just, we're talking a lot more about identity politics and how that plays into, you know, the stuff in our final episode and things like that. And of course, the situation of American slavery was... I don't know if entirely unique, but like something deserving of its own exploration of the dynamics of the legacy that has wrought. And so likewise, and I don't even want to generalize across the experiences of the different tribes, but there was a genocide. Certainly there's a difference between we can't just subsume the experiences of blacks in America that are trying to deal with the legacy of slavery to the native experience, which seems again, you don't, it's not the oppression Olympics or whatever, but like, a genocide is really bad. It's like the fact like that there are at least former descendants of slaves left to be dealing with this as opposed to do you know what the percentage was Canada less harsh? Do we have any idea of like what the percentage of I want
1: to bet that Canada was probably less harsh, but I don't I don't have numbers in front of me, in front of me though. But there's just less people here too. <laughs> yeah, that's true.
0: The whole country's the size of Mexico City, 33 million people in a country this big. From what you know about native history in canada does that mean that there was less fighting over land and like so the reservations are bigger or they're not even called reservations or like is there any substantial difference or it seem like violent
2: in the u.s way more violent in the u.s like about just open killing i live in a city with 10 percent native population that's huge and then we're in whole areas it's nothing but So we'll compare it out to the U.S. where it's less than a quarter of one percent or I think it's a tenth
1: of a percent. It's really. Listen, I'll just say this real fast. I'm not going to get that that deep into this, but America fucked over the natives like they did. Like they completely messed over the natives. They killed the natives. They tricked them out of their land. They gave them smallpox blankets like they fucked over the natives. And Canada was bad, but America was like multiple times worse.
0: So yeah, given that I'm interested in the, and I know this was a big thing in the sixties in particular, like that when you had black power, well, you also had red power. You had books being written about that sort of phenomenon of, you know, how the identity politics should be different, but whatever you might feel about group responsibility, you know, that comes into, oh, well, you know, did my ancestors own slaves? Am I responsible for the, all that stuff is much more acute even when you're talking about Native populations in terms of like, well, what do you want? Well, you might say as a Black American, I want the full same opportunities. I don't want there to be such a thing as white privilege anymore. I want it just, but if the whole approach to the Native populations was, we're just not letting you integrate and retain your culture, whatever that means for Black cultures in in the South, in here, in there, but there are still independent governments that are now like, put onto a reservation. And it's a completely different dynamic that I can't pretend that I understand at all. I know people (laughs) old enough
2: 30 years ago who still carried their day pass. You would be arrested. If three or more Indians gathered in public, you'd get arrested. You were not allowed to leave the reservation without a day pass. That is crazy. So we'll talk about a type of genocide that we didn't hear. Fine. They weren't killing everyone, but they were definitely killing the culture. So I will never look at the color orange. The same again, because this is representative of all those kids who died. Sorry. Take your time, man. Take your time. Anyway, they didn't try to kill them all, but kill the culture, save the man Definitely. was the motto, right? It was the motto. So, here, you know, we talk how much in- culture is important. We are clearly living why it's so damn important. And we talk why spirituality is so important and we're living it. And a lot of the healing now is specifically for people embracing their cultures.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And. When we all get to that place, then we can start to say, oh, you know, it's great that that person this and that person's that, you know, we really got to come to that because we're all on this planet together, ultimately. Like we got to get, I don't want to say get past because we can't just brush it off, but we have to deal with it and take a very hard, honest look about what it is to be a human being. And, you know, racism just does not make any sense at all. It's scientifically invalid, all wrong, right? Anyway.
0: Let's wrap this up. Thanks so much, John. For Seriously, thank you, John. Any of this
2: content, I'm totally fine because I have people to answer to when I come here. I'm not a scholar like you guys. I have rough edges. I'm the Diogenes of this conversation. <laughs>
1: Diogenes, get out of here, man. <laughs> That's funny. Appreciate
0: you. Thanks, Lawrence. I know you were apprehensive about doing this with me in I'm, I'm, place. It, It's so fine. I'm so glad it, we it, did. It worked
1: out well. It worked out well, man. Thanks a lot.
0: Thanks, listeners. So long. Take care, guys. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.